Well, today is Ascension Sunday, as mentioned, and our text is the New Testament reading from Acts chapter 1. And we'll make two points. They should be there on your outline. The Apostles' Commission and the Lord's Ascension. The Apostles' Commission and the Lord's Ascension. So, our author is, of course, Luke, who's the writer of the third gospel. Both Luke and the book of Acts are addressed to one Theophilus, a man apparently of some social standing. So when in verse 1, Luke speaks of his former book, the former book in which he wrote of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. The former book is the Gospel of Luke. That's the book that's being referred to there. Jesus began doing and teaching during his earthly life, but the book of Acts is what he continues to do and teach after his ascension. Jesus' ascension means he has now changed the mode of his activity, but he is still mightily present and active now throughout the whole world by the Spirit. Thus, as has been said, the Acts of the Apostles, the traditional title for the book our text comes from, could perhaps be better called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or even better, the Acts of the Ascended Christ in the Holy Spirit. Now we know, because Luke tells us, that there was a 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection and the Ascension. This is why Ascension Day is always celebrated on a Thursday. It was just this past Thursday. And then it's celebrated in many churches, as we are doing here this morning, on the following Sunday. And during this period, this 40-day period, Jesus conducted a kind of mini-school. He instructed the apostles through the Spirit. He presented himself alive, Luke says, giving many convincing proofs. He appeared to the apostles in this period and spoke concerning the kingdom of God, even as he did on Easter evening with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, speaking to them of all that is written about me in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets. So in this 40-day period, this period of appearances by the Lord and instruction by the Lord, One of these post-resurrection appearances brings us to verse 4 in our text. On one occasion, he was eating with them, and he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. So Jesus here is preparing his disciples for his ascension, for life without his bodily presence, which they had enjoyed for the previous three years. What, we might ask, is the gift that the Father has promised? It is, of course, the gift of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. After the ascension, ten days after the ascension, comes Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after our Lord's Passion, even as the ascension is 40 days after the Lord's Passion. Lord willing, we'll look at Pentecost next week. But the the Father had promised the Spirit. The Spirit is promised in the prophets, in the book of Joel, the book of Ezekiel, for example. And on that last night that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room discourse in John's gospel, 
Five times. Five times our Lord promises the sending of the Spirit. Speaks of the coming of the Spirit from the Father. And of course, John the Baptist as well spoke of one who would come after him. Who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. And so, in verse 5, Jesus reminds them. John baptized with water, but in a few days, in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is the first piece of instruction. Right? Don't leave Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait. Wait for the gift of the Spirit. Don't run on ahead of God without waiting for the Spirit. Seek the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Wait for the Spirit. The Christian life in its totality is a result of the gift of the Spirit who is God himself. It is not the result of our best attempts to keep the law. It's the result of the indwelling, the infusion, the pouring forth of the life of God himself into the human creature. So then, our text proceeds to the very last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before he ascends. Verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Calvin, commenting on this text here, says, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. <laughs> he, he goes on, he speaks of the, the disciples' remarkable blindness, he says, who, after being instructed by Jesus for three years, show no less ignorance than if they had never heard a word. Perhaps a tad harsh there on on the disciples. But they have misconstrued the kingdom. They've misconstrued the kingdom. They're waiting for a political, earthly kingdom. right? They want an imminent, meaning near in time, theocracy. In which Israel is exalted above the nations. Israel is liberated from Rome. And probably one in which they are the chief executives. This mindset was prevalent among the disciples and among certain sects of Judaism in the early church. You can remember uh, the mother of James and John. She wanted her sons to sit, one at Jesus' right hand and one at his left hand in his kingdom. In any event, whatever errors there might be about the kingdom in the heads of the disciples, Jesus' rebuke focuses on the question of always trying to be caught up in timing and discern the times. He starts with, it is not for you to know the times or the dates which the Father has set by his own authority. Now, this is probably obvious to most of us. Maybe it's old hat. But this is such an important word for the church. We live in an era, or a generation anyway, uh, where end-time theories and end-time speculations and predictions, erroneous predictions abound. Often these are in ludicrous form. And sadly, they bring real shame and disgrace on the witness of the church. Right? We, we have a, a culture that buys books by the millions, predicting these end-time scenarios. And so we always need 
to hear afresh the word, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know. It's a rebuke to our ungodly curiosity and to our presumption and to our always intruding ourselves into the things of God, right? A rebuke to our obsession with dates and times and seasons. Because after all, we have to know what God is doing. We have to be in the inner circle. We have to know what he's going to do. It is not for you to know, Jesus says. It's a real important word. I mean, they just asked a question about the kingdom. It's not for you to know. Be obsessed, as we said last week, be addicted to Scripture, to what is for you, for you, given to you to know, right? to what is revealed. Ask a thousand questions about what is given in the text. Right? There are plenty of really good questions that one could ask. If the risen Christ is standing before you in the flesh, and this is the last time you get to address him. But the question the disciples asked, when will we get political power? That's not among them. It's not among them. Not a single question from these guys about the text of the law, or the prophets, or the working of the covenant, or the being of God. Just, Lord, when are we going to have power again? When does the glory come? So, after it's not for you to know, Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word but indicates a contrast to their question. So you want earthly, political power? You're going to get power, but it's going to be of a different kind. You will receive power meaning you'll be passive and receptive. You'll receive this power. You'll receive the power of the Spirit of God, which it turns out will be the power of love, the power of turning the other cheek. It'll be the power of weakness, the power of faithfulness unto death, the power of martyrdom, the power of winning by losing the power of a different kingdom, the power of a kingdom with a different origin and with different means and with different methods and with different goals and ends, a kingdom of a different order, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in this Holy Spirit. Or as Jesus says earlier in Luke's gospel, a kingdom which is within you, a kingdom which does not come, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, visibly, or by observation. A kingdom, which Jesus says, my father is pleased, takes pleasure in bestowing, giving to his little flock. That's the power of the Spirit. And the fact that we need to receive power, of course, indicates that we're weak. That we're unable in ourselves to engage this mission that Jesus is going to call us to. There is no innate human potential for the Christian vocation. No innate human potential for the Christian vocation. I mean, think about this. This is a startling thing. Christ himself 
had to be anointed in his human nature and filled with the Holy Spirit and power for his own mission. So you too, as a little Christ, as a Christian, must be anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. So religion or religiosity or even spirituality does not need the Spirit. Right? Religion, spirituality doesn't need the Holy Spirit. It can do just fine with human moral effort and discipline. Our calling, however, collapses without the, the gift of the Spirit. What one hymn writer called this best of all donations that God can give or man implore. One can ask of God nothing higher, nothing better than that he give us, that he fill us with the Spirit. The Christian life, then, is not humanly possible. Wherever it occurs in any heart or soul of any human person, it is a sheer miracle of the grace of God. There's no human potential for it. It is not humanly possible. Now, in the Gospel of John, the risen Christ breathes on the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that context, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given for mission. The Holy Spirit comes down and propels the church out. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Stop worrying, disciples, Jesus is saying, about the times when the kingdom will be restored. You have work to do. In fact, you're called to a worldwide mission. You're to to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. What a magnificent thing this is, this Catholic, global, international summons to every human person to believe the gospel. Because every human person was made by the Lagos incarnate. The Jesus whom we preach is the creator of every single person. And they are made in his image. And so his message, his redeeming gospel, goes out to every single human person. The Messiah is light to the Gentiles, right? light to the nations, and thus the messianic people are called to bear light out into the world. Witness then, witness, this is what defines the church's existence under the ascended Christ. Ascension Sunday means it's time to witness Sunday. Now when we talk about this, witness in the way it's being used here includes, it includes, but it's not limited to witnessing. It includes evangelism, but to be a witness embraces the sum of Christian existence. We are witnesses. It's not something we do primarily. 
It's something we are. Being precedes doing. So to be a Christian and to be a witness for Christ are the same thing. And of course, we witness primarily by the proclamation of the word, but also through deeds of love and mercy through the whole of our lives together. So Jesus has now reminded them of three things, really. The promise of the gift of the Spirit, the power that will come with that gift, and then the program of bearing witness to the ends of the earth. That's the program the church is called to undertake. That is the Ascension Commission, the Great Commission. It's the most noble of human enterprises, and we are all to be about it. So the second point in this text is the Ascension itself. The Ascension itself. In verse 9, in this very brief and matter-of-fact way, Luke records the Ascension. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Luke will repeatedly in these few verses speak of the disciples' eyes, of their looking and of their seeing. He himself was careful, right? He tells us to consult eyewitnesses. He told us this at the beginning of his gospel. He was careful to consult the eyewitnesses and investigate everything carefully. And it's interesting, the whole report here of this event, unique event, uh, spectacular event, is given in an almost journalistic way. Luke here is simply reporting the eyewitness accounts he's received of the ascension. So what he says is this. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. There's no attempt to to, uh, shield the event about with any um, spectacular mystery or anything. He just reports it. This is what happens. A cloud took Jesus up. Now, I want to talk about this cloud a little bit. Because this is not a mere rain cloud. This is the portable throne of God. If you're an attentive reader of Scripture, the cloud image is present from the beginning to the end. This is a miniature replica of the highest heavens where God is worshipped by his heavenly host. It's as if heaven itself comes down to take Jesus back up. This is the immediate, visible presence of Yahweh. This is the cloud which followed Israel in the wilderness. This is the cloud which houses the glory that dwelt in the holy place. The same cloud which overshadowed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it indicates that his final departure is here. For he must ascend into heaven because that is what the first Adam would have done had he been obedient. Had Adam been obedient, he would have entered into heaven itself, into the Sabbath rest, into the immediate glory and joy of God's face. And now... Jesus himself, as the second Adam, is, if you will, escorted by this mobile, portable version of heaven itself. And indeed, the ascension is an assurance to us that because he is there, he has raised your nature there. This is the whole theme which the book of Hebrews calls the forerunner theme. What he does, we do in him. Where he goes, we shall go. And so the ascension assures us that our dust, our tents, our mortal, corruptible, perishable, weak flesh and blood, this flesh and blood which cannot in this form inherit the kingdom, shall be raised there where our forerunner, our elder brother, the one who shares our humanity has gone. 
You cannot have a rightly ordered Christian hope without a high, vigorous love and appreciation for the ascension of Jesus Christ. So, back to the disciples. They're looking intently, as anyone would be, into the sky as the Lord is departing, and two men dressed in white appear. Right? These are angels. You'd expect them to be there because the cloud is God's portable throne and angels are throne room attendants, luminous, fiery beings. Angels attended his birth. Angels strengthened him in the garden of Gethsemane. Angels proclaimed the resurrection at the tomb to the women. And this glorious cloud of God, when Ezekiel sees this cloud, he looks up into the cloud and what does he see? He sees that it's flooded with all of these hosts of angels and their wings are flapping. So it's no surprise that these angels would appear with the glory cloud at the ascension. And they now speak to the disciples. Why do you stand looking up into the sky? Bodily now, Jesus will be absent. The time of sight with respect to Christ, is over. The era of faith, the era of looking with the eyes of our hearts up into heaven, has now begun. There may even be a bit of a mild rebuke to the disciples here, meaning something like, don't be stargazers. True, true heavenly mindedness to which we are called does not mean staring off mystically into the heavens. This same Jesus, they continue, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. The creed makes this point every week. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father from which he will come in glory. The ascension points us to the second coming. The angel does it. The creed does it. Now notice, the ascension is visible. It's bodily. right? It's attended by God's glory cloud, by these angelic hosts. In the same way, the text stresses this, in the same way Christ will come again, visibly, bodily, attended by the hosts of heaven and the departed saints. Here's Paul talking about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says this, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Later, in that same chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This coming is visible and glorious. It's attended by angels and saints. Visible, bodily, glorious. All the saints, all the angelic hosts, the Lord who ascends that way will return that way. So the ascension assures us not only that our humanity 
will ascend in glory with Christ, but that he shall, in fact, come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This same Jesus will come in the same way you have seen him go. That being established then, the church has a mission to undertake in the power of the Spirit. Because the gift of the Spirit that Christ sends, the the Spirit is himself the seal or the guarantee of the coming glory. It's as if Jesus sends himself in advance, if you will, when he sends the Spirit down. So that mission then for the church and being oriented eschatologically to the end, they cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. Because mission takes place in the power of the ascended Christ's gift of the Spirit. Now, besides this idea of already mentioned of craving to know times and seasons, which has already been corrected, there are a couple of additional errors that are rebuked by this text. The first one is this. The first is the lust for earthly political power. Right? The disciples' concern about Israel, about Israel's international prestige. That's one error. But the second error is gazing into the sky longingly. Both pious retreat from the world and a utopian perpetual activism. You know, where it's all politics all the time. Both of these things are deep distortions of the Christian life and of the gospel. The ascension makes us heavenly-minded people with an appropriately calibrated and directed earthly mission. It makes us people who long for the second coming and who know that that longing should express itself in the interim between the ascension and the coming of the Lord in this mission that Jesus gives us in the power Not of the flesh, but the power of the Spirit. Right? God is now forming by the ascension a people who know that the Christ who has ascended now has all authority in heaven and on earth. He fills everything with his energy, with his presence by the Spirit. And especially fills the church, the ascended Christ does, with the Spirit so that we can wait and work and witness and worship so that we might engage this great commission until the end of the age, until the same Jesus who has ascended into glory, right, comes to restore all things and to consummate his kingdom. There was a well-known uh, Anglican pastor, bishop, and missionary to India in the early part of the 20th century named Leslie Newbegin. Some of you may know Leslie Newbegin. Anything you can get by him is worthwhile. He writes this, The church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth, beseeching all men to be reconciled to God, and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord. He continues, It cannot be understood rightly, except in a perspective which is both missionary and eschatological. He said eschatological that time, not me. The church cannot be understood. It cannot be understood except in a perspective which is both missionary and eschatological. There's no better way to end than that. 
The ascended Jesus makes us a heavenly, eschatological people, and through the coming of the Spirit, a missional people. Right? Where you have mission, say, without eschatology. What tends to happen is the Christian faith is reduced to one political ideology among others. The best one, to be sure, the divine one. But there's no eschatology. It's all mission, 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 mission. Where you have eschatology but no mission, well, then you tend to have a pious, mystical retreat from engaging the tough issues of the world and the culture. We are both a heavenly eschatological people and a people on a mission, and we live in that tension. And that's the message of the ascension, the wonder of it, the summons of it. The times and the seasons will be obscure and dark. It is not for you to know. Don't worry about them. Your duty is clear. And it's very simple. Be filled with the Spirit. Wait for the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And then bear witness to the ascended and coming Christ. Amen.